0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today we return to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, and our guest is the Reverend Frank Macht, the director of the chaplaincy. Frank is a minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, although he's originally from Germany. Together we reflect on his journey as he refers to it, and the experiences he has had as he served and trained all over the United States, from Berkeley, California, to Atlanta, Georgia, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Nome, Alaska, and finally to Lebanon, New Hampshire. Frank was first called to the ministry as a hospital chaplain through a training program known as Clinical Pastoral Education. His interest in this specialized form of ministry led him to become a clinical pastoral education supervisor, which allows him to supervise the clinical training of other chaplains. In this podcast, we discuss the training a hospital chaplain goes through, the role of the hospital chaplain, and specifically the role of the chaplaincy at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I really enjoyed this interview because of Frank's unique story and how he enhanced my own understanding of the role of the hospital chaplain and chaplaincy training. I think it's important for healthcare leaders to understand what a well-trained chaplain can bring to the care team, and I think Frank does an excellent job of explaining that role. Frank and I had a lengthy conversation about his career and the role of the chaplaincy. To produce this episode, unfortunately I had to edit out much of the conversation that was of interest to me, so I am posting two versions of the interview, the edited version and the full-length interview. You are listening to the edited version. If you would like to listen to the full-length version, please check our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is the Reverend Frank Macht. Welcome to The Forge, Frank? Thanks for having me today,
1: Mark. It's exciting to see you again. I look forward to our conversation.
0: So listeners may notice a little bit of a different accent today. I'm not going to have the usual New Hampshire accent. You're originally from Germany, and you studied theology at the universities of Frankfurt and Munster before coming to the United States. When did you know you wanted to be a minister, and what inspired you to follow that path?
1: Well, I actually started uh, studying theology before I knew I wanted to be a minister. That's an often asked question, especially if you're younger and your friends here in your volleyball club, you know, asking you, why would you want to study theology? Are you going to be a pastor in a church? And I had uh, gotten curious about asking some of the bigger questions in life after I uh, finished high school and I ended up doing a civil service, you know, instead of military service at the time. That was a choice as a conscientious objector and I ended up uh, serving in a church setting. Um, Not an environment that I was particularly familiar with or had grown up with, and during that time and also through a significant relationship, you know, I had more questions, you know, about uh, maybe God and the world, so to speak, and to everybody's and maybe even my own surprise, I told folks after I was done with this um, uh, internship or civil service, you know, to study theology not necessarily with the goal of being a a minister or pastor and then people are asking well if you're studying this you know what are you going to do with it Uh so it has kind of been an evolving process and I think we'll get to that as I've seen your questions a little bit later once I Get some clinical experiences actually here in the U.S. being at the bedside with people that sense of call I could be a minister rather than a theologian or a teacher or maybe pursuing a PhD okay. kind of emerged so it's okay. been a, a gradual process and maybe it's still growing on me
0: okay. okay so you so you did undergraduate work uh while you were at at, at frankfurt munster was this a is there a u.s. equivalent of graduate school in there or
1: I believe that's changed at the time, which is now like 25, 30 years back when I started out. We did not have undergraduate studies. So actually oh. this morning, you know, as I was sitting in a class with one of your colleagues, this was the first college class I ever took, you know. <laughs> in Germany at that time, you would graduate with your Abitur from the high school, which not everybody finishes. You know, there's a three-tier system early on in the school system. And then you end up straight at the university, either studying medicine or law or business or theology. So there is not this kind of British model or American model of a four-year undergraduate. I understand now. Um, in the meantime, that's changed in the last 10, 15 years. I think there's a standardization as the world is getting smaller with international degrees. So. Now I'm surprised when I go back to Germany and I see younger folks and they are talking about getting bachelor's and master's degrees. Okay. I don't think that's the case in theology but again when I started out it was a long 7 8 year um years of study but just with this specialty. Okay. And when I came to the US I was able to transfer credits so um, I actually got a master's degree or two in this country without having officially a bachelor's degree, which is kind of a...
0: That, that is interesting. Okay, so, so what <clears throat> brought but you... But I put
1: the years in and the studies that okay. I want to claim. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you to the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, which is in fact where you got your Master's of Divinity and a, and a Master's of Arts, you said? And were you ordained before you came?
1: I was not ordained at the time, so I was um, like 25 years old and um, in Germany and had, had studied theology for five years and I um, felt kind of restless at the time, you know, um, kind of a little bit um, on the road kind of feel. I wanted to spend a year in a foreign country. Um, maybe learn a different language or improve on English as uh, I ended up in the U.S. But basically get a little bit out of the culture and kind of the beaten path, which is something fairly difficult for Germans to do do because once you're on that track, you know, you stay on the track Mm -hmm. versus here in America. I've really appreciated, you know, that people have second careers. You know, you can change um, according to your passions and start over again. This culture is uh, much more receptive to that. But for me at the time, I uh, wanted to spend a year in a foreign country, and when I studied in Münster, I met a professor who was a colleague of one of my professors there who came from Berkeley, California. This particular school, he um, taught um, business ethics, kind of a subspecialty in ethics, you know, in in a seminary, and I was very interested in that topic, ethics in um, connection with the real world, in this sense, with business settings. So here I saw my opportunity not just to go anywhere for a year in a foreign country, but after he gave a couple lectures, I asked him, you know, what would it take for me to study with you? And it was a life-changing event, which I didn't know at the time. He got a little business card out of the admissions office of Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. So I didn't know much about Berkeley, but I looked on the map, and it was Northern California and San Francisco, and that looked great. But I had a person I connected with. Mm-hmm. It was a personal relationship, and I also had a purpose. You know, I wanted to study particularly that topic with him and so passed some English tests, uh, test of English as a foreign language. And ultimately, a year later, I came to Berkeley with the intent to be there for a year, which then turned into And you were, gonna,
0: you were coming there to study the business ethics Aspects and, I asked, and,
1: and and other theological courses, but okay. I, I was especially drawn to him I okay. had all done had done already a lot of the so-called undergraduate work and basic um, New Testament Old Testament biblical studies in Germany, so I had a lot of freedom because of these the transfer of credits to kind of specialize okay. So I became a teaching assistant in his ethics course, Intro into Ethics, I believe, and worked closely with him. Charles McCoy, I should mention his name. Okay, good. He's also passed away, unfortunately, um, in the meantime. Um, but he became a mentor, and um, what I really appreciated is the close relationship you could have with a professor here in this country, certainly from my experience, versus in so Germany. It was that different? was much harder with, at that time, you know, many more students at the larger university setting, and and a little bit more the Herr Professor, you know, was kind of typically in his or her own sphere, you know, versus that close side-by-side mentoring relationship or being on a first-name basis, which is so American compared to a differential culture in Europe. Sure, That was a very moving experience and probably contributed to me then also wanting to stay, you know, a second year, the language was getting better, there were more questions, you know, than answers, and ultimately I finished, finished my degrees in this country
0: so while you were in germany were you on a, you were studying theology were you on a track that you were pretty sure you were going to be ordained at some point or had you not made that decision
1: i hadn't made that decision really at this point before i mean before you
0: came to berkeley
1: that's true you know i don't think ever anybody had asked me that with respect to ordination that came much later after i took a semester off while in berkeley okay and entered what we will get into it's become kind of a life's calling clinical pastoral education so i crossed the bay from berkeley to stanford california um, to the hospital there okay. for about five months and, and got some training and worked with people in a clinical setting and that really then um kind of affirmed me in my sense of wanting to work closer with people and not just pursue a PhD in the academic setting but um, really serve the church and kind of um, people more directly and ultimately that led to the decision then to become ordained and affiliate with a with a denomination with a church you know in the in the US okay. once it became clear that at least I wanted to um, finish my studies here and get ordained in this country
0: interesting so you'd come to Pacific school to study with your mentor. You were particularly interested in ethics and some of the other things that he had, he had mm-hmm. introduced you to. Why the break? Why the decision to go to Stanford?
1: Well, uh, like eight and maybe nine years of this, of theological studies now in the classroom and still having that question that you actually ask first is about ordination and what are you going to do with this degree? It was kind of looming, and I said, after all that theory, I need to have some practical experience. And it wasn't the time yet for an internship in the church. That came later. That's a denominational requirement, which actually got me up to Alaska for the first time. But I learned about this thing other students talked about called CPE, clinical pastoral education, where there's a structured program where students would uh, be in the clinical setting, typically in hospitals. And with mentorship and with within the group process would experience themselves, you know, providing pastoral care to primarily people who are in the hospital, patients, families, also staff. So for me to get out of the classroom, take a break, experience myself, you know, in a ministry role was was necessary at the time and then ultimately very formative. Okay. So uh, yeah, I could say now that maybe it was providential, you know, that I saw that announcement, somebody had dropped out of a residency and for practical reasons, that also meant that person, you know, uh, was giving up a kind of a position that had a stipend associated with it. I had to think about financing myself in my second, third, fourth year in this country. So taking a semester off, at least having a small stipend for a few months, leaving the ivory tower, that was really the benefit of, of that decision.
0: So you went to Stanford for six months and you had your first mm-hmm. exposure to to CPE. Mm-hmm. Let's Let's talk a little bit about kind of the general... Uh, process and of training and, and CPE training what level of training so there's different levels of CPE what level did you pursue up through while you were at Stanford can you maybe talk a little bit about those yeah at,
1: at that time it was um, basically um, called basic and advanced nowadays we call it level one and level two the primary uh, levels for CPE so you could say one as a beginner's level you know introduction to the clinical method of learning Um, Now, if I have students, and at that time, this was my first time being in a healthcare setting in a hospital. So you learn a lot about just functioning in a hospital and finding your way around the different disciplines. So it's an acculturation process that is fairly basic and needs some attention now with new students, and which I needed to learn. Kind of sense of professionalism, you'll dress differently, you know, than being in seminary and you're expected, you know, make a difference in people's lives by being responsible, visiting with patients, you know, in assigned areas. So that is um, and, and then being in a clinical setting, basically being sent out there, you know, uh, with a short orientation period. Certainly by the end of the first week, you are out there knocking on people's doors, so to speak, and trying to begin to have meaningful relationships and trying to assess what may be helpful for people. So really, the clinical aspect—you know, the, the not trial by fire, but by uh, experimentation. You know, maybe some errors, or questions unanswered that you would come back to your supervisor in your peer group for reflection, which is the other big part. Okay, action and reflection, and then you know, you learn something more. Action, more reflection. This constant back of, back and forth of doing things, you know, and reflecting on what you did and trying to learn what was helpful, what was less helpful.
0: So quick orientation. You found out, okay, this is a doctor. That's a nurse. You know, and then you're out there. And what was it they were telling you to go out there and do? So, can you give an example of? So you're told, you give a list of patients who are in the hospital and go visit these people. And yes, right. It's
1: not not necessarily that we tell. Now I'm in the role of training Uh people. You know, tell folks what to do. But essentially essentially to begin initiating helping relationships, so you will be assigned to a clinical area, let's say on cardiology or oncology, and you're asked to visit people and to establish a relationship that's um, caring and trusting and kind of begin to listen what maybe the patient's experience is like and then to respond in a meaningful way so that folks may be comforted, may be able to explore, you know, what their experience is, to create a reflective environment, to maybe respond to particular requests. Since you I remember, you know, they had this name badge there on the first day that said chaplain, you know, and I wasn't an ordained minister and now I had the authority and the responsibility that comes with a a name tag and with a badge and expectations that come with it. But that's part of the clinical learning, you know, to step into the role of a minister and then see how do people relate to you? What do they expect? Do they have preconceived notions? to say, oh, you may think, oh, a chaplain's at my door. Well, they probably want to pray with me, you know. Oh, oh are they going to preach to me, you know. I've gone to church and they're trying to convert me. So <laughs> those are kind of the pitfalls of of chaplaincy. Um, as we're entering a room, you know, you don't know what the background is. You haven't read anything about the patient. Maybe you know a diagnosis of what brought them to the hospital. But a lot of it is by trial and error to establish relationships and um, kind of offer to journey with somebody while they're displaced to say the least maybe in great distress maybe hopeful about you know a surgery or procedure that they have elected and provide uh, a meaningful companionship that may lead to exploring particular spiritual issues or may draw upon religious practices depending on on the patient and the family and their needs
0: and if you're not of the same denomination or religion or the patient is not religious at all? What, how does that affect the, 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 the relationship? And the it, it
1: doesn't really matter, you know, it, it, because um, typically chaplains are assigned to these clinical areas, let's say a particular medical specialties unit, and are not assigned by denomination. There are variations in different chaplaincy departments. Sometimes, and often the Catholic population is fairly large, it is sometimes helpful to have a Catholic priest on staff who attends to the particular sacramental needs of Catholic patients. So some hospitals may organize their spiritual care department along faith or denominational lines. The centers where I trained and where I now work at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock does not do that. So if somebody requests a particular faith group, you know, I want to see a Buddhist chaplain. We don't have one on staff. We may find somebody in the community. If somebody wants a sacrament of the sick, Mm -hmm. we do have a Catholic priest on staff. I cannot provide that. I may have a listening presence, but certainly I would get one of the fathers there to provide that ritual
0: that he is authorized to do. What triggers a visit from a chaplain? Is it a standing thing, or is it a serious enough illness, or a request, or...?
1: Very helpful question, that I think each chaplaincy um, department has to address, and they may um, be able, depending on their resources, address it um, differently. I would say that we, as probably most chaplaincy or spiritual care, pastoral care departments, if they're often called, are not staffed in a way that every patient would have a visit from a trained chaplain who does an assessment of the spiritual needs that would be a wonderful goal and something maybe to work to however that's typically unrealistic so we try to assess with the help of other clinical staff where the top priorities are So, if a chaplain, let's say, has a list of patients in their assigned areas, sometimes the diagnosis, sometimes the religious preference, sometimes the age or the length of stay may give us some information about uh, a certain urgency. It's fairly limited. What rises to the top is certainly any kind of specific referral, a self-referral, a request from a patient, a family member, letting other staff or us directly know uh, we are here, this has happened, you know, and we would like to have a visit from a chaplain. Then we respond immediately. We're on call 24 7. Most hospitals have that service. Particular situations like any major crisis, you know, usually associated with death and dying, with a new diagnosis, um, will may trigger, you know, for the staff to think, oh, we want to have the chaplain here, this doesn't look good in the emergency department or there is a cold clue, everybody's working, oh, it's nice to have the chaplain here in the background to maybe support family member while the code team you know, is doing what they do to save a life
0: is that so, a standing order if you hear code blue does that trigger the, one of your staff the, to go respond
1: correct we do we are part of the paging the group of mm-hmm. um, team members who are automatically paged when there is a code blue oh interesting okay. that does not always you know lead to some meaningful engagement in ministry because mm-hmm. obviously the patient is not going to be conversant however Often with family members right there, you can imagine how distressing that is. Now suddenly, you know, you thought your spouse or your uh, your parent was getting um, better, and now they are in cardiac arrest, you're waiting there. The chaplain may provide, you know, a comforting presence. Sometimes um could be a link, a little bit of communication, you know, going in there, Say, oh, we got anxious family members there, are there any news already? You know, I may go back and say, yes, they're all working very hard, you know, with your family member, the doctor said, you know, he would maybe within 15, 20 minutes come and give an update on what's happening or what needs to happen. So sometimes we're a valued link, you know, on the team in these acute crisis situations in the ED or let's say a code situation.
0: So uh, you were at Stanford and you were starting to do this and learn how to do this effectively. Right. Um, And you were not yet ordained. How did that? How did that affect your your interactions with patients? When did did patients kind of ask you, okay, you know, what are what are you? Um, and did you? How did you explain? Well, I'm a student, or I'm you know.
1: You're learning how to explain what a chaplain does. I think now even more so than 25 years ago, more and more people may not be familiar with the word. Uh, when they yeah, hear chaplain, they think of Charlie Chaplin and often spell <laughs> it that way. That comes up even in clinical documentation here and there. For some people, it means um, priest or pastor because their reference point is church or synagogue or the rabbi, you know, chaplain. It's a, uh, somebody representing a faith tradition with a particular interest. But also people who have had encounters with healthcare, they maybe have a good grasp that a chaplain essentially is there to accompany people during a crisis time or even with um, chronic illness to offer emotional, offer a spiritual support. Often people will think, oh yeah, a chaplain is somebody I can pour my heart out, um, somebody who will listen, somebody who is maybe less rushed to have to do things, you know, physician time with patients gets shorter and shorter, even nurses are busier and busier also with documentation. So they say, oh yeah, I need somebody to talk to what's going on with me on the inside. And that gets pretty close, pretty quick to what a chaplain does. And when a chaplain or me as an intern, you know, way back then there in Stanford um, kind of says, oh, I'm here, you know, to journey with you, or I'm wondering what's going on with you as you're dealing with this new situation, then often that eases, you know, patients' or family members' fears about, oh, he's not here to preach to me. This is not about me going to church or, you know, morality and some of the things that so often religion has and still is about.
0: Yeah. You use the phrase "journey." Is that, a, is that a is that a phrase that is commonly no. used in the in I the? I think it's seven? commonly used. I I like. And what do you it? mean by that? Well, people
1: are on a journey, you know, um, so to speak, in life. And when often when there is a healthcare crisis, either an acute event or sometimes dealing with chronic issues that kind of pop up here and there, it usually puts a journey to a halt, or there may be um, some changes on that journey those are opportune times for reflection and often people will ask some of the bigger questions in life that you and I and others don't attend to as much when we're busy with our jobs and managing children and families and all of that but sure enough you had an accident and I could have died or now I have this illness or we're sitting here waiting for the results of something showed up on a scan It puts a halt on the journey, but then as um, people are navigating maybe the new normal, yes, I will have to go to rehab, I'm losing a function of a particular aspect of my life. Um, I, down the road, may have to go on in life on this journey without um, my child, you know, my parents, uh, a spouse. Those are opportunities, what I would say, for meaning-making and um, renegotiating um, kind of life's journey and what is important. That's part of the reason, I think, why um, chaplaincy departments and also this training method, you know, um, ended up being affiliated with medical centers because of the crisis nature of hospitals. Um, The need is there and the receptivity is typically there. Uh, as well as the opportunity to reflect with somebody who um, also has a certain training and background to at least engage, you know, the bigger questions in life. Not necessarily to have the answers to why did that happen to me and why now and this is not fair and there's so much suffering in the world and um, certainly those things
0: that come up, you know, if you're facing, you know, matters of life and death. So you were in your training. And you mentioned it used to be called basic and advanced. It's now level one and level two. What level did you get to during that six-month period? Is is there Uh, a clear uh, delineation? Yes, now you're- Not
1: necessarily a clear delineation. At that time, probably, I stayed at that basic level. And later on, after doing an internship in a church, I kind of re-entered CPE in New Mexico and Albuquerque. Then you may move to the next level, which uh, basically is is a continuation of asking more questions and developing skills to continuously engage these matters of life and death or decision making at a continuous basis you know you you move beyond just basic listening skills you know mirroring techniques that help somebody to unburden themselves but you learn about How to maybe ask more poignant questions or um, get to aspects of guiding, you know, assisting with decision-making. You learn how to self-supervise your own work, you know, in beginning you depend on others to give you feedback. If you're at the level two now or at an advanced level, like any practitioner, you're able to evaluate your own work. We do this in CP primarily with a verbatim format, where um, students, like I did, and now I supervise the work of students, write up pastoral encounter situations with patients, families, sometimes staff, Mm -hmm. um, reflect. That's called a verbatim. It's called a verbatim, because at the core really is uh, in verbatim the encounter, you know, the patient said this, this is how I responded, and this happened. And um, the student usually um, evaluates, you know, that interaction, said, is there anything important that was said that I missed? Did I respond in a way that actually was helpful? I noticed, you know, there was a sigh of relief or a patient expressed some appreciation and gratitude or you could visibly tell that was meaningful to explore where somebody says, well, thanks for stopping by, you know, um, just to talk about it, you know, with you helps me, you know, now I can talk to my family members. So to be able to uh, self-evaluate your work, because at some point you're leaving this training process and you're functioning independently as a practitioner, it's really a big part of that level, too, getting to that point. You can do your own work of self-evaluating and self discipline.
0: So chaplains who have achieved level two, or the advanced level, as we used to call it, actually, when they're back in practice, will sit down and write a verbatim and then review their own work.
1: They may do that. I wish they would all do that <laughs> after they're out of the training <laughs> okay. program. Oh, I, see. Okay. I, I think so they're not doing that consistently. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> but is, Often, that, is that the idea, though?
1: That would be an, uh, the ideal that at least occasionally you they would do, do it, okay. or they would seek peer support. Oh, I see. Often our students will like this um, program because there is a pe- strong peer component in there. I'm now near the end of the unit right now that the students I have, five of them, they're saying, well, what will I do without this process? You know, when for emotional support, because often, of course, encountering these uh, existential tensions, as I would say in people's life, you know, have an emotional toll. So there's a great need for support, but there's also a great need for reflecting on, you know, what went well here? I felt like this was kind of a dead silence and we never got anywhere. Who can I talk? about this and keep on learning.
0: So you did this experience at Stanford, and this is what you said was kind of the triggering point for you to say, I, I do in fact want to be ordained.
1: I want to be ordained. I want to be in ministry. I can see myself. I really very much felt affirmed in in my sense of being able to make a difference in people's lives. So that's kind okay. of a, well, a confidence builder, but, a, but an affirmation of, um, that sense of calling. There, there's a need out there, and there's a hunger for people to have meaningful relations, and relationships and need for support during the stressing times. And if I could help with that, that essentially
0: became my calling. And was the attraction immediately to a hospital-based practice uh, or, or ministry, or, or, mm-hmm. or were you thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll do a church and then I'll, I'll do some of that as well?
1: I think it was immediately, um, to this clinical setting as well as the education. Okay. However, as uh, we continue, kind of on my vocational journey, I um, to get ordained. There are certain requirements in my denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, for good reasons. Part of the expectation is that you do an internship, you know, in a congregation. And that was the time for me to consider leaving, you know, the Bay Area. I did have the sense, if I want to minister in this country, at some point you have to get out of Berkeley. <laughs> 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 this is not the norm, you no, know. I <laughs> needed to <laughs> expose myself to a, good, a different sub context. Right. And sure. um, at that time, which um, became very influential, you know, there were the group of students who would go on internships in a room with a big table and all the internship profiles of congregations were there. And I did remember there were lots of congregations in um, Northern California, in the Pacific Northwest, and then there were two, one in Hawaii and one in Alaska. And those two, maybe the travel bug again, you know, got my particular uh, attention. I wanted to kind of see another part of the country where I hadn't grown up in. But I decided, or I, I, thought, Hawaii is almost too nice of a place. I come from a working class background, and I love to visit Hawaii and have done so and enjoyed it. But basically, a whole year to spend in a place that um, draws on sunshine and vacationers—kind of—it's, it's, it's almost too nice. So, kind of my blue-collar background, kind of. It was drawn to a little bit the more nitty-gritty of Alaska and the climate being different there and a different environment that certainly was adventurous in its own way but maybe a little bit closer to home and real people and work situations and people living you know in sometimes harsh conditions so yeah. No surprise. I was the only one who wanted to go to Alaska, and I got that um, opportunity. And this turned out to be, you know, a very, very meaningful year and serving and learning, you know, in this congregation. That ultimately led, after I returned and did more CPE in in a different setting, um, uh, later led, you know, me having a parish call in Alaska and spending um, about another fourteen years there in ministry.
0: Okay, so you did you did your internship. In Alaska and then you came back?
1: I came back for personal reasons at the time, some relationship I tried to save, which ultimately um, did not work, um, but that took me a little bit on a, on a spin vocationally and I at that point in the Bay Area decided to go back to clinical pastoral education and get a maybe a third unit of training, maybe that adla- advanced level. Okay. Kind of I was a little disoriented about what to do next with the relationship changing and not having a clear sense and not feeling ready for a parish call. So I had experienced this educational program as a very healing place and nourishing, you know, because of the constant action and reflection. And it was very meaningful for me yet to go to another different culture in the Southwest. I ended up in Albuquerque. A very different population there um, enjoyed it greatly, and then continued actually with a second year residency, a full year of um, CPE, and uh, at Emory in Atlanta, um, yeah. Georgia. So, okay. so that was a big long transition period w- already with the goal to um, um, the the emerging goal to become actually a pastoral educator and what's called a CPE clinical pastoral education supervisor.
0: Okay, so what level of education did you get to while you were in Albuquerque, and then were you at that point that had you achieved the supervisor level, or was that only after you went to Emory?
1: That was that was much later. Okay, so I probably in Albuquerque did another basic unit that was in a different context, a new hospital, large Hispanic, also Native American population. So CPE really. Um, takes its learning from what's really the environment, a particular situation. A mantra is, you know, let your let your patients teach you. What's your patient teaching you? You know, the questions arising out, out of each context or encounter, you know, become, you know, your your learning and you set your own goals while there is some curriculum built. But you kind of don't know what you're learning until you're stepping into situations that you want to learn about. So for me, you know, um, dealing with Albuquerque had a lot of gang violence at that time. So being on a call, being in DED, dealing with shootings and with stabbings and having large Hispanic families often there, uh, dealing with kind of different psychosocial contexts. You know, in that context I could learn something about it because I was kind of called in or thrown into those situations. Then I went, as I mentioned, to, for a whole year because I really uh, fell in love with this training method and I went to, to Atlanta, Georgia again, a very different cross-cultural setting which i also passionate about, being from another country and uh, fully embracing the diversity of um, am- America, living in Berkeley and Alaska and New Mexico, and then in the South, you know, of really all places, of and them, ending yeah. up in New England <laughs> of all places. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, 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 seeing a lot and, and kind of um, being energized by that. Yeah, I did. Well, I did go yeah. to um, Emory in Atlanta, out of all places, because at that time. They offered for the first time a CPE residency, a full year, four units of training in business and industrial chaplaincy. That connected with my interest in business ethics and corporate culture and my working class background, ministering to people, you know, at work where many of us spent most of our waking lives. And I'd learned about this new program there that was actually attached with Emory and the hospitals but also was in the community with the business, so I didn't have any other plans. I was without a relationship. I had nursed for some time. I could move anywhere in the country, and this was um, off interest, and I could go, and if that program would have been in Boston, or in Seattle, or in Minneapolis, I would have gone there because of that opportunity to do this training in in a workplace setting.
0: So you spent a year at Emory doing right. uh, uh, doing a, a full year for you said four units of, of CPE yep does that mean you were a, a does that mean that at that point you were officially a CPE supervisor no still no not. that that's separate
1: It was a second year residency with a specialty in workplace ministry okay. At that point I would have been eligible to become a board certified chaplain however I decided or I was encouraged and welcomed, encouraged to apply for a supervisory education position, which is that third level of uh, CPE programs, where then you train to become an educator. And that's typically a multi-year process where under supervision you learn how to supervise students. And I um, had connections because I'd spent time in Albuquerque at Presbyterian Hospital. They just started that training program. They informed me um, that it was happening and encouraged me to apply because we had the relationship, they know I love that work and maybe they saw the potential in me. So I didn't have any other plans of what to do after that year. So I went back to Albuquerque, started that process for a year and a half. And then actually I ran into the denominational requirement of needing to be ordained to continue in this educational process. And the requirement was to go into a parish and serve a parish for three years. I had the permission of my bishop you know, to go that supervisory route. But then ultimately, when an official vote was taken about waiving that requirement that was denied. I had to abandon the process and then said, you know, okay, didn't like it at the time, you know, sure. because I was on my path, you know, and I had invested in a year and a half. But if that's what it's going to be, then I'll go back to Alaska where I was assigned as a path, uh, as a, so you uh, a call. clergy. And then I uh, pursued and uh, received the call. And I said, I'm not just fulfilling a three-year requirement. I will take this seriously, whatever is beneficial for that congregation. And maybe for my ministry, I will do. And maybe later I'll return to supervisory education.
0: Okay, so you received your call from Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Nome?
1: In Nome, Alaska, of all places, people were thinking, Frank, you are crazy. You're still single at that time. You know, I was in my early thirties, and what what are you doing to go up off the road system in to Nome, Alaska, you know, for personal reasons, but I was very interested at that time, first of all, to to serve the church, you know, that I had affiliated with and to fulfill the requirement and done some. And again, to do so in a, in a setting that was different and kind of, um, I, I like new things, a little bit the adventurous spirit. And as I you asked earlier about the sense of call, the bishop is a big part in that. And at that time, there were about nine congregations in Alaska that only has about 30 Lutheran congregations were open and the bishop said Frank you have done all this clinical pastoral education in um, hospital settings you've been around trauma a lot you know you have uh, had a lot of reflection and this training in this congregation or in this setting and the fringes you know of the Bering Sea and also in this native community there's a lot of trauma there's a lot of abuse issues, there's a lot of alcoholism, there are a lot of accidents, there are a lot of premature deaths, there's a lot of suicide, like many of the native communities, whether it's on reservations here in the so-called lower 48, as well as up there. So he really had some wisdom and said, knowing also you know, the, the tension and difficulties you know, that had impacted previous pastors who often didn't stay much longer than three, four years, because the high burnout rate in this kind of environment, it's fairly because tense. of those
0: kind of stressful,
1: co- common, the common, yeah, common stressors of kind of this web of alcoholism impacting almost every family. This being the norm, you know, underlying, you know, abuse issues, domestic violence, high rate of accidents, the suicides again. So he said, Frank, you probably can because of that experience you have and maybe also the network of uh, mentors and colleagues in this field it may be easier for you to sustain yourself in there and you love pastoral care and counseling and being with people and then he said essentially a pastor up there functions, functions like a community chaplain you know it's Yes, Is you,
0: that different you, than say, well, maybe in a more in a
1: suburban church, you know, the worship leadership, good preaching, you yeah. know, um working with the youth group, you know, maybe creative worship services. Uh, visiting certainly with elders and the shut in the community, at cr- Christian education, a Bible study. I mean, those are certainly things you would expect to be within the realm of responsibilities of a pastor. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, depending on the context, you know, these needs shift. Right. So in that congregation, they had a very um, traditional set worship style. I didn't need to be very creative and messing around with the pews and create new experiences, but I was very interested in walking with the people and learning about what they do in the community and some of the hardships. Yeah. So um, probably a lot more of my time was spending counseling there and supporting people with these hurts and afflictions you know, that they were dealing with. I, in that context, probably had more funerals than certainly in a suburban church with young families, okay. including um, younger people because of some of the suicides, um, accidents that were happening there. So, so that requires a certain skill set that with the bishop's wisdom he imagined I, I may be a good match in that environment and I, I give him a lot of thanks and kudos and say yes, he knew that the CPE and the, the learning that had taken place as well as those relationships really helped sustain me there.
0: So how long were you a pastor? In Nome? In, at, at Savior's?
1: At our Savior's at Lutheran Saviors. Church. I was a little over six years.
0: Okay. And then did you go directly from, from there to Anchorage to Providence, Alaska Medical Center? Okay. Right.
1: Yeah. And I'll give you a little background how that came about. At this uh, time, during that fifth or sixth year, I had actually gotten, uh, found my wife up in Nome, Alaska, of all places, mm-hmm. and had gotten married. My wife's originally from Maine, which already gives you a hint of why we're in the Northeast or part of the reason why we're here. And we had our first child born very prematurely. Uh, my wife went into um, labor during her six months of 24 weeks of pregnancy in in Nome, and we were flown to anchorage ended up at providence the hospital they essentially saved the life of our little daughter sophia when she was born prematurely and ended up 100 days in a neonatal intensive care oh, wow. unit wow. so we got exposed to anchorage but also because of her occupational therapy needs after she was discharged we went back to Nome for another year they provided services by flying people in from the big city, you know, kind of once a month. But we were starting to look maybe, you know, our daughter will need more continuous services that only could be provided in a, in a bigger city with healthcare resources. And at that time, then, um, providentially, I would say, um, we learned that at Providence Alaska Medical Center, they were looking for a manager of their spiritual care department and wanted to develop a CPE program while... I had reconnected with Stanford and was becoming a CPE supervisor and pastoral educator. So they had a need for wanting to establish a program to improve the quality of their chaplaincy services. I was in state, but up in Nome, Alaska, wanting to become a supervisor. So that seemed to be a good match and ultimately um, resulted in my hire and serving there also over six years developing a CPE program and being back in a healthcare setting and then also finishing my education and that third level or supervisory education okay. that allows me now to um, lead CPE programs and supervise students.
0: You, you went to Providence and you established the uh, CPE program there in 1999. And yeah. then it looks like you achieved accreditation as a freestanding CP training center. So you were independent of Stanford in about 2010.
1: Right. I re- was not able to do that, even, you know, to sustain myself and know him without, um, I should mention, you know, George Fitzgerald. There was uh, a main mentor of mine who took me on as a student. Huh several thousand miles away being in Stanford, California and me being up in Nome, Alaska so I would go down for supervision on a regular basis and then later on helped established what's called a satellite center at Providence Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage and yes um, after a few years of work and putting a program in place getting myself through the process we were able to accredit a freestanding center that's to my knowledge still functioning up there in provides, you know, at least one site where people can train, you know, for chaplaincy or chaplaincy-related ministry.
0: Well, that's a neat accomplishment. In 2011, you came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Were you hired directly into your current role as the director? or?
1: No. no at that time, um, Patrick McCoy was the director of the chaplaincy services. He um, retired a little over a year ago, and then I... Promoted. assumed, prom- promoted, to take on that position, which is similar now to the role, you know, I had in Alaska. Yet it was actually very helpful, you know, to kind of step out of that leadership role for at least three years and function as a staff chaplain and also do the supervision of the students. Okay, it was a little bit of a reprieve from the headaches that come with administration management, and, right, and right. management, <laughs> and now I'm back at it. And, of uh-huh. course, there are also opportunities um, that come with that to kind of create a vision for the department and align oneself with organizational goals and kind of get the creative juices flowing, you know, being in that role. Also, I felt like I was part of that also in my supervisory role.
0: So what (coughs) made you decide to make the jump? from Alaska to New Hampshire. So your wife's from Maine. But well, that was
1: a big motivator. Once we uh, decided to leave Alaska, we, we were looking at seeing what were there any openings, you know, near uh, in New England, essentially, to be closer to family. At that point, we had a second um, daughter, two children, you know, two girls, um, Sophia, who I mentioned, and Isabel. And I'm so far away from my family in Germany. Being in Alaska in the summer, there are direct flights, but otherwise it takes 24 hours to get there just having two professional parents not having any support not uh, having the girls know their grandparents so once we left Alaska it was clear we wanted to look in the Northeast which again was a new environment for me as you have heard you know I like kind of doing new things but it also was important for me now that we I and we had children to create a permanent environment for them. That's meaningful to me having grown up in Germany. My parents still live in the house where I grew up. I, when I go home I know where to go and I want something like that for the children. And while we left, uh, loved and then left Alaska, you know, um, I, I sure would hope that this is the place you know that they will call home that is a good home for them but also will call on home later on in life. And it puts us closer, you know, to family, especially my mother-in-law who sometimes comes over and helps or just enjoys being with the girls. And it's closer to home for me, you know, a flight from Boston to Frankfurt is much easier, especially anticipating maybe elder care, health care needs. I'm an only child. That's important to me that I could fly out in the evening and be there in the morning in case that's necessary. Knock on wood's not the case yet, but that may come. So that figured in. Great. And the opportunity to end up with Dartmouth Hitchcock was particularly of interest because it is an academic teaching hospital. I was in a faith-based hospital, a Catholic hospital, which has its advantages if you're in spiritual care. Right. Obviously, you know there's strong support for kind of from a faith-based perspective. People in leadership understand the value of spiritual care. I, being also somewhat an intellectual, also very drawn to the academic side, and this is something I'm still learning about and seeing how in a teaching hospital we can integrate spiritual care even more so maybe with research, which is a growing area in our field. And I I hope or certainly will be open to partnering with others to see um, if there's value in that to foster multidisciplinary care and integrate spiritual care, maybe even in some research.
0: What is the mission of the chaplaincy department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock?
1: Well, I would say that the mission um, for us is certainly to provide good, solid, uh, emotional, spiritual support to our patients and their families and also to our staff, patients and families when they're with us. We most recently, we got kind of uh, restructured or reorganized and now report to um, the Office of Patient Experience which I think is a very wise move in the sense of leadership recognizing that the key people who are addressing emotional and spiritual needs, the chaplaincy team, actually can have, and that's well demonstrated in some research, you know, the overall patient experience because we listen to to people what it's like, you know, to be in the hospital while everybody else needs to figure out what to do to get them better and help them. Our our mission is certainly you know to to have a positive impact on patients and their experience in the hospital, not just in the sense of them being satisfied with our services, although that's great, but also you know to um, really help them navigating healthcare, to um, maybe learn from their experience to have an overall really impact on their well-being the core emotional and spiritual need you know taps into um, a sense of hope is one of the key tasks help people you know sometimes and with their values with respect to decision making we focus on helping um, people with the relationships and the relational aspects you know of crisis in a family and people having different feelings and fears about you know an illness and the impact on the family and still of course at the quarter journeying with that we talked about while um, patients and families are entrusted into our care we walk with them and a task and opportunity for chaplains is you actually take the time to sit with somebody and reflect on their experiences or sometimes sit in silence, you know, to be with them while, while they're hurting essentially and wondering what the future will hold or what got me into this in the first place. Um, other staff seem to have less and less time, you know, doctors consistently are dissatisfied with kind of losing that s- almost sacred patient-doctor relationship because of organizational administrative needs and missing that face-to-face. Um, encounter uh, and, and, and chaplains I think can provide that and I would say that's a big part of our mission to huh, often staff say to, to really keep the patient human because oh, okay. sometimes we get so distracted you know with particular aspects this organ or this cell or this particular crisis or this bug you know and yes doctors right. and nurses of course need to attend to that because that's having an impact on the whole person but chaplains then kind of provide kind of a big picture, you know, we don't know much about a particular illness and what it does to the body, you know, but we listen to what does it do to the spirit and how does it impact the whole family. So other staff members sometimes will comment that a chaplain's um, chart entry actually helped them to really see the whole person. And that can easily get lost, you know. Um, so
0: you actually make entries into the, into the medical <coughs> Yes,
1: um, typically professional chaplains would would chart, you know, and that's sometimes more or less read, you know, by other professionals, certainly discharge planners, social workers. Sometimes physicians and nurses will attend to that because that's of value to kind of see in the bigger picture what's, what's going on. You know, somebody may disclose something with a chaplain that um, they may not as readily talk about, you know, with others.
0: So Dartmouth Hitchcock has the Geisel School of Medicine, the Dartmouth, Dartmouth School of Medicine in it. How does and so I, you mentioned it's an academic medical center, so right There are, yeah, there no. are physicians being trained at Dartmouth Hitchcock. How does that affect your role? How, how does that affect the mission of the chaplaincy and what's your role uh, working with medical students and, and residents and so forth? Mm-hmm.
1: This has kind of evolved just for me and I would say for our chaplaincy department over the last two years and has really been an added delight, you know, and particular interest of mine in my role as the director and also as a chaplain and an educator. Um, About two years ago, we did receive, we applied and did receive a grant from the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health, Healthcare. Um, that's a group led by Christina Pochalski, you know, down at George Washington University. And um, this grant gave us some support and accountability with respect to leading or facilitating reflection rounds with medical students during their third year, one of the clerkships. So we had a physician, Tim um, Siegel, who was able to take this on as a surgeon, but also as a palliative care doctor, and um, he and oncology nurse practitioner and myself would co-facilitate, usually two of us, reflection rounds of medical students during their surgery clerkship. That's continued in some fashion, and we're looking at um, having that continue. It builds on other... um, attempts to integrate more the humanities into medical schools. I think our medical school, as probably others in the country, are sensing, you know, the human aspect, the personal touch is getting lost and the relational abilities maybe of future physicians would depend more and more on technology and data Maybe getting lost. And also physicians and future physicians may be less satisfied. So there is a need and there is an attempt, you know, to integrate the humanities into various aspects of their training. For example, an on-doctoring class, you know, that brings peer groups of medical students from the first year together to reflect on their sense of calling and maybe their mission and their values and their experiences with patients. So I have greatly enjoyed co-facilitating these reflection rounds because for the first time really I got to hear and listen to what it's like to be a medical student and those challenges are tremendous from the time management to dealing with the hierarchy of uh, the first patient encounters, dealing with uh, delivering bad news, encountering their own vulnerability and limits when it comes to death and dying. Maybe their own sense of calling and how their own spirit is impacted by being in this demanding role as a student and learning you know, to become a competent ph- physician. And um, to have um, our skill set as pastoral educators valued, you know, we do a lot of reflection. Our training is based on experience-based learning. So to be welcomed and, and, and ask, you know, to help the medical students who kind of navigate that, that part of the education has been very, very meaningful. And I would hope, f- think so from the feedback of the students has
0: been very beneficial. You supervise six chaplains and they have different religious affiliations Mm -hmm. is this intentional
1: very much intentional diversity is uh, very important in our training process as well as in any modern you know chaplaincy or spiritual care department Um, i mean it fosters you know um, learning overall we do have two catholic priests two ucc ministers that is more likely since we're in the northeast and that's a stronger denomination uh, I happen to be Lutheran, we have a um, Catholic chaplain, UU. So there's some diversity, we do have, have a student who is Buddhist, we have had students you know, who are Jewish. In a m- major metro area you may also have a Muslim chaplain on staff in a larger hospital or in a system, Or especially if the population, you know, Muslim popul- uh, population is higher. So we're very open to that and encourage it, that kind of
0: diversity. How specialized are your chaplains? Are you all generalists, all all educators? Do you have subspecialties, some sub- yeah. board board certifications? Well, they're all board certified
1: chaplains primarily as generalists. So, yeah. so certainly when hiring or when we are thinking about bringing a new chaplain on board, since we back each other up and support each other, we want to make sure that we can send a chaplain in every area of the hospital. So that that's kind of the minimum expectation, you know, in almost every situation, whether it's working with little children or they're dying, you know, we want somebody to be comfortable. That, um, that we can do. We do have uh, uh, some specialties with respect to uh, next week we have a new uh, children's hospital chaplain coming on board who has extensive experience in working with pediatric uh, situations, children and their families. That is kind of a subspecialty. Um, the educators you're mentioning, I'm the only one right now who can educate staff. However, we, since last year, started training supervisors in training. So we're training future educators. And that will be their specialty, just like it is my specialty and in my calling. My okay. There's a palliative care chaplain as well. That is a kind of a leading clinical area that is very welcoming in integrating chaplaincy into the core of their interdisciplinary work. Now there even is some attempt to offer specialization and certification for palliative care chaplains, and I think nationwide curriculums are developed you know, to address that particular need, and that's something we want to look at too for future students since that's a growing field
0: do you have lay volunteers that are affiliated with providing religious or spiritual support very is, few is that run out of your office
1: in our office we do have um, eucharistic ministers of the catholic tradition so they support the priests and bringing holy communion to catholic patients throughout the hospital that's the only group okay. we have other hospitals when i trained at stanford for example they have large groups probably several hundred volunteers based on various denominations, also being in a very diverse area. They have a Hindu chaplaincy, they have a Muslim chaplaincy, they have an Episcopalian chaplaincy. So in addition to the generalist, professionally trained chaplain, they have volunteer groups who uh, visit and provide ministry to people based on their faith group and denomination. So that's possible, but I don't think we have that much of a need for that kind of ministry in our setting.
0: What's unique about managing chaplains?
1: <laughs> you make me smile. What's unique about managing chaplains? I mean, chaplains, of course, are the de- delight to work with in the sense of having a, a strong dedication and a sense of calling. That's really as, at, at the core, you know, of we're here to serve something larger than ourselves, however, we understand that. So, that, that dedication, you know, is an excellent resource. Chaplains bring that to any organization and certainly to their the individual work. I hardly ever have to doubt that, that somebody is not motivated by something larger than self-interest, you know? And if we can help a whole organization in doing that and nourish that in others, I think that's a contribution uh, that we can make in helping people connect, you know, with a true sense of calling and, again, something larger of their self, however they understand it. Of course, that also for most chaplains is their primary commitment. So sometimes there is a tension or a challenge to um, work with organizational needs or sometimes the administrative or a business culture. Chaplains are typically motivated by high ideals and by social justice and kind of being prophets, you know, sometimes in their own way, in their own tradition. And that's an added value. Versus, you know, dealing with the ins and out of organizational life and large business structures and the bottom line figuring into decisions, that sometimes puts um, chaplains with their high idealism. Sometimes me also at attention, so I can identify with my colleagues. But if you're in a management role, how to navigate that, I would say that may be a unique, unique challenge, you know, to align, you know, your team of chaplains with the organizational mission, which, of course, if we are here to care, do the best of our abilities for everybody and promote health, you know, would typically align also with the chaplain's vision. But the realities of business decisions, you know, in organizational context, you know, that sometimes it's tough for some chaplains, you know, to live with because it
0: doesn't meet their ideal of justice. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a chaplain?
1: Well, that is a big theme in our field and uh, has come to the forefront, you know, more over the last 15, 20 years, I would say. In my previous setting, that was primarily done to um, patient feedback and evaluating oneself against peers all over the country with respect to patient satisfaction. In our current setting, we're not collecting that kind of data, primarily, I think, because it is more a quantitative approach rather than uh, measuring the effectiveness of particular clinical interventions that lead to certain outcomes. There's a lot of work to be done in our field, and my hope would be also being in an academic teaching hospital that we contribute to that evidence, you know, through research in the years to come no organization can do it on their own in this field but for the last few years there are national conferences on research and chaplaincy i would think you know we can uh, contribute to that uh, right now i mean we are certainly depending on the feedback directly you know from patients often you know their stories the value that's attributed by interdisciplinary staff they have a good sense you know of what a chaplain does and how particular chaplains function and if they ask us to come we know they trust us that we make a difference in people's lives so that's fairly generic but there's a lot of room for something more systemic that's certainly evidence-based
0: when we talked before we talked about the future of spiritual care as the health system moves towards a population health model and reimbursement based on value Mm -hmm. Um, you had some interesting (coughs) ideas about how spiritual care could be part of that movement i was wondering if you could share a little bit of that some thoughts on
1: that yes one of the, the thoughts I have and certainly people in the field have is about how can we further integrate spiritual care in the whole spectrum of healthcare. we've done a good job and are traditionally based um, with an inpatient population in a hospital however you know with movement towards uh, maintaining the health of populations on a larger scale the question becomes, for me, how can our chaplains, you know, also do work with and follow patients where they live, whether or not they're at the hospital or the rehab facility or a nursing home? So we're exploring with some of our students now if we can provide some of the continuity of Emotional and spiritual care by chaplains whether it starts at the hospital and follows into the community or we have a student Who resides in the community knows people from that area when they come to our hospital this person sees That particular patient and the family Because if you have to retell your story, you know to other caregivers and providers you are establishing some some depth then you go to another facility or sometimes even a different unit in the hospital in the past we would pass on these people to a different chaplain I would want to develop explore and maybe actually research you know some models and see if we can do this better imagine you or a family member where at our hospital you end up spending a few weeks there you connect with the chaplain If that were a chaplain who actually also lives and maybe has another call you know in the community and you are able to stay in touch during a rehab process of somebody who was in an accident or a chronic health issues that you have to deal with with your teenager or your spouse i would think there are some great benefits if you have made a good connection you know and that person stays with you again journeys with you not just these two weeks when you're in the hospital but over a longer period of time so how to develop that and navigate that I mean that's uh, right now we have more questions you know than answers and how to do that systematically but that's something we're tapping into exploring
0: so let's close on this I I teach here in health management and policy we're training young folks to become healthcare administrators what is the most important thing that they should understand about the role of the chaplain and the chaplaincy uh, in a hospital or other healthcare organization.
1: I feel really blessed that our leaders in our organization, who I n- know some of them um, closer than others, of course, have a very good grasp that chaplains, as somebody who again journey with people, do have a strong impact on the overall experience of a person while how they're cared for, you know, overall in the hospital. I think ideally then a leader also, whether they're religious or their faith or they have a sense of spirituality, independent of that, that they have a sense that chaplains also represent somewhat the spirit of the organization. That chaplains in some ways, you know, embody you know, the mission and the values. That was especially strong when I worked, you know, in a Catholic healthcare faith-based setting where... You know, the mission and spiritual care is one on the same person. In an academic teaching hospital, you know, the values are somewhat different, you know, more scientific based. And maybe spirituality doesn't come to the forefront right away. But I think a leader sensing, you know, the opportunity a chaplain has to engage individual patients and their families kind of at their core existential needs but also the core existential needs of the organization and the people who work there and that there's great value in that. And there's some freedom with the chaplaincy role because we're less productivity driven, you know, than others since we're not revenue generating and we're not charging people, you know, for a a prayer and a listening ear here, there. Uh, I think effective leaders sense that and, and, and say, yes, this is of great value to our organization. And if they ask us, you know, to provide maybe some of the data and more details, I think that's okay too. And that's a challenge, you know, that I would as a manager or director of a department bring back to the team and say, Yes, we want to be accountable and we want to demonstrate by patient stories and maybe systemically how we are making a difference. That is our task and I think we 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 have the responsibility and communicate that better case by case, you know, one situation at a time, or maybe through research, you know, more systemically.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really enlightening.
1: It's been wonderful to revive my, uh, review my own um, kind of uh, vocational journey. It's been um, quite a few years and also an impetus, you know, to, to keep on learning and growing and, and, and serving. So thanks for uh, reflecting with on where I've been and how far I've come and the work that's still left to be done. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.